Take your girlie to the movies if you can't make love at home. Take your girlie to the movies if you can't make love at home. Hello, and welcome back to Silence's Platinum. I'm your host, Jessica Keaton. And this is the fourth entry in our series called No Talkies, Silent Forever, where we are covering silent film actors and actresses who died before they were able to appear in a talkie, cementing their fame in the silent era. This is part two of the episode about silent film stars who lost their lives due to pneumonia. If you missed part one, no worries. You can always check it out later. This episode is going to cover four different stars, so it isn't like you're going to be lost if you listen to this one first. So, let's begin, shall we? Mary Thurman was born Mary Maverine Christensen on April 27, 1895, in Richfield, Utah. She was one of seven children born to Christian Christensen and Mary Sophia Nelson. Christian passed away when Mary was just nine years old, and out of all the children born to the Christensens, only two would survive infancy, Mary and her brother Ernest. Four of the children would die of diphtheria around 1893. Mother Mary would survive all of her children except Ernest. The family were of the Mormon faith and very active in the church, where Mother Mary sang in the choir. Before she began working in pictures, Mary attended the University of Utah and worked briefly as a teacher. It was actually while she was out visiting California that she was spotted by a studio talent scout. You know, the old, so you want to be in pictures line? She soon began gracing the screen and the beaches as one of Max Sennett's famed bathing beauties. Her film debut would be in the 1915 short, The Lamb, which starred Douglas Fairbanks and Cena Owen. Not a bad way to start. It's no surprise that since Mary was part of the Max Sennett crew, that she would be known mostly for appearing in comedies. She appeared in shorts with titles like His Last Laugh, A Bedroom Blunder, and Love Loops the Loop. Comedies were fine and all, but what she really wanted to be was a dramatic actress. Mary told one interviewer, Comedy never came naturally to me. I had to force my comedy. I became a comedian for the same reason Rockefeller founded Standard Oil. I needed the money. I shall always be grateful for the years I spent in comedy. I attained success, and I made money, but it wasn't the sort of work I liked. She finally got her wish when director Alan Dwan cast her in his 1920s drama In the Heart of the Fool. The film covered topics like love, loss, betrayal, children born out of wedlock, death, and then, of course, a touching ending. Mary got great reviews for her performance from the movie audiences and critics alike. She also got rave reviews from Alan Dwan, it seems because the two fell in love on set and were engaged for a time. In the years following, Mary was able to appear in more dramatic films, such as 1921's The Broken Doll, 1922's The Green Temptation, and 1925's Back to Life. 
It was while filming her latest drama, Down Upon the Swanee River, in Florida, that Mary became ill with malaria. The malaria soon developed into pneumonia, which she battled for months. Finally, on December 22, 1925, she passed away. Her mother and her best friend, fellow actress Juanita Hansen, were at her bedside. Mary was just 30 years old. Mary's funeral would be held in her hometown of Richfield, Utah. Juanita Hansen took time off from her acting career to accompany her dear friend's body across the country from New York City. Juanita would also speak at Mary's funeral, at times becoming overwhelmed with emotion. She concluded her eulogy with, And now I have fulfilled my mission and brought her home to you. Surrounding Mary as she lay in state were dozens of flower arrangements sent by family, friends, and admirers from Hollywood and her hometown. One of the largest arrangements was bursting with ferns, sweet peas, and orchids, and was sent by Mary's ex-fiancé, director Alan Dwan. Following the service, Mary was laid to rest next to her father and siblings at Richfield City Cemetery. Mary was known as Vaughn to her family and friends until 1912 when she married publisher Victor Thurman. It was then that she began using the name Mary Thurman. The couple divorced in 1919, but interestingly, her mother-in-law, Isabella Thurman, was mentioned in an article about Mary's funeral, having sent her condolences to the Christensen family. No word on what the ex thought. Thirty years is no way near long enough for a light like Mary's to have shown. When you look at her pictures and see her on screen, it seems hard to believe that she died when she finally had achieved happiness in her working career. And no matter if she is frolicking on the beach in a Max Senate short or pouring her heart out in a dramatic feature, we remember her. Emily Stevens was born February 27, 1883, in New York City. She was the second child born to theatrical manager Robert Stevens and his wife, actress Emma Mattern. Her brother Robert was a year older. As you can tell by her parents' profession, Emily came from a theatrical family. In fact, she was the cousin of famed stage actress Minnie Mattern Fisk. Emma Mattern and Minnie's mother were sisters. Emily attended school in New Jersey and would make her stage debut when she was 17 years old in a production of Becky Sharp for her cousin Minnie's theater company. It was sadly just a few years later in 1903 that her mother passed away. The following year, Emily became a permanent touring member of the company and would remain so for eight years. In 1915, she made her film debut in the Rolf Picture Plays studio feature, Cora, playing the titular character. Her early pictures were made at Rolf, which was only in business for about five years. She then worked for Metro Pictures, then the Atlas Film Company, and finally the Schomer Ross Productions. Fan magazines called her performances wonderful, astonishing, and in one film review for the 1917 film A Sleeping Memory, it was said that she had surpassed her previous dramatic triumphs. 
For the 1917 film The Slacker, which was described as a big patriotic story without battle scenes, Emily's acting was called superb. Her film career lasted only five years, with around 15 films and shorts, ending with 1920's The Place of the Honeymoon. The reason for her short film career could have been because she preferred the stage, or because fans enjoyed her stage work over her film work. It could even be both. In the years following her retirement from the screen, she appeared in various stage productions and was about to begin rehearsals for a revival of the play Diplomacy when tragedy struck. Emily Stevens was found dead in her apartment on January 2nd, 1928 in New York City. Her maid, Mary Myers, discovered the body. Emily was just 45 years old. Almost immediately after her death, multiple causes of death were offered up. Emily passed away from an accidental overdose. She died from an intentional overdose. She had pneumonia. She had a nervous breakdown and died of exhaustion, etc., etc. The medical examiner announced within days that her death had been due to an overdose. However, her neurologist, Dr. Wilson, came forward and said that Emily had been under his care recently. He had been treating her following a nervous breakdown and would administer sedatives via an injection at each visit. Dr. Wilson wanted it made clear, however, that although the injections were sedatives, they did not contain opioids and therefore could not have caused an overdose. His theory, following their recent appointment where Emily had seemed more on edge than usual, he administered another injection of her sedation medication. However, she may have taken more than usual and eventually elapsed into a deep sleep and then a coma. Dr. Wilson believed that during her comatose state, she developed sudden pneumonia and that was the cause of her death. Her death certificate reads, congestion of viscera as the cause of death. And that could mean any number of things. What anyone knew for sure was that a very talented actress was gone far too soon. Emily's funeral was held at her apartment in New York City, the same one she died in. She was buried alongside her parents at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. Newspapers made a point to mention that Emily died single and childless. She never married and reportedly didn't have very many serious relationships. The reason behind this is sometimes credited to the fact that she was in love with Harrison Fisk, the husband of her cousin Minnie. She first laid eyes on Fisk when she was a young teen in Minnie's theater company. Tongues wagged and whispers abounded about this illicit relationship. But nothing ever came of it. It seems as though Fisk forever had Emily's heart because she never pursued any other men. It's sad to think that this beautiful and talented actress only lived to be 45 years old. It truly was a shock to hear that the superb, astonishing, and wonderful Emily Stevens had died so suddenly. A few months after her death, the Baltimore Sun ran an article discussing great theatrical actresses and performances, and concluded this with a sentence that serves as a lovely sentiment. The greatest of these incomparably the greatest of these was Emily Stevens.
Ward Crane was born Ward Thomas Crane on May 18, 1890, in Albany, New York. He was the only child born to railroad engineer John and his wife, Alida. Ward's first career wasn't on the stage, but as a government employee. Ward began working as an IRS confidential stenographer for Governor William Solzer of New York. Unfortunately, in 1913, Governor Solzer was impeached, meaning Ward was out of the job. So, he decided to join the Navy, and was soon stationed in San Diego. It was while at this base that he met director Alan Dwan. It was Dwan who told Ward that he should have a go at the moving pictures. Ward would make his film debut in 1919's The Dark Star. The film was made for Cosmopolitan Pictures, which was owned by the publishing magnet William Randolph Hearst. So, it should be no surprise to hear that the star of the film was Marion Davies, Hearst's mistress. Ward's best-known role would probably be as the local chic slash villain in Buster Keaton's Sherlock Jr. in 1924. Ward's slicked-back hair, dashing good looks, and perfectly curled and manicured mustache made him the perfect foil for Buster's wannabe detective. The following year, he would appear in another popular film, The Phantom of the Opera, starring Lon Chaney. Ward played Count Ruboff, a man vying for the affections of Christine, played by Mary Philbin. In the original cut of the film, there was a scene featuring a duel for Christine's affections between Count Ruboff and Raoul, played by Norman Carey. However, this scene tested poorly with test audiences and would eventually be cut from the version released to theaters. Ward would make his final film appearance in 1928's The Rush Hour with Marie Prevost. It was released five months before his death. Close to the time he was finishing up filming for the rush hour, Ward fell ill with pleurisy, which is an inflammation of the lining of the lungs and chest cavity. He suffered with this for about three months before the pleurisy eventually developed into pneumonia. His body appeared to be too weak to fight the new infection, and he continued to worsen. On July 21, 1928, in Saranac Lake, New York, Ward passed away. He was 38 years old. He would be cremated, but unfortunately, I don't know what became of his cremains. His military funeral was attended by many in the film community, including his close friend, Jack Dempsey. Ward never married and left behind his father, John, who was widowed around 1920. John Crane lived to at least 1930, where he is listed on the census as widowed, retired, and living with his brothers and sisters. According to a mini-biography published in 1924, Ward enjoyed driving around Hollywood and was said to be a great athlete. Ward may have only lived for 38 years, but his work on screen, especially in Sherlock Jr., has lived on for almost 100 years. Thankfully, we can remember him both on screen and now on this podcast. Casson Ferguson was born Casson Michelle Ferguson on May 29, 1891, in Alexandria, Louisiana. He was born to jeweler John Ferguson and his wife, Josephine. He had three older brothers, John Jr., David, and William, and had at least two sisters, Jane and Joe. 
I read that he may have had one more sister, but I was unable to confirm this and get a name. On his draft card in 1917, Cass enlisted his occupation as unemployed actor, and under reasons for why he thought he should be exempted from the draft, he listed dependence and tuberculosis. He was in fact married at the time, and did have a young daughter. He enjoyed acting on the stage, and was part of a Shakespearean acting troupe. He also worked briefly in comedic operas. He would make his film debut in the 1917 Selig Polyscope short, A Pearl of Greater Price. He appeared in films for a bunch of different companies, including Selig, Universal, Triangle, Metropolitan, and Paramount. Kesson appears to be somewhat of a free agent, either that or he was frequently loaned out. One of his biggest film appearances was in 1925's Cobra, which starred Rudolph Valentino and Nita Naldi. In the film, Kasson plays Jack Dorning, a friend of Count Rodrigo Torriani, played by Valentino. Valentino, of course, is as dashing and suave as ever, while Kasson reminds me of a Leslie Howard prototype. He's good-looking, with a strong face, and a subtle acting style. It makes me think that he would have had a career in the talkies, It's sad to watch the film and think that neither of these men would live long enough to make a sound picture. He made his last film appearance in 1928's 10th Avenue for the DeMille Pictures Corporation. On February 12, 1929, Casson Ferguson passed away from pneumonia. He was just 37 years old. He was buried at Inglewood Park Cemetery in Inglewood, California. As I stated earlier, Casson was married. In fact, he was married twice. His first wife was Inez Geraldine Griffin, who he married around 1913. The couple had a daughter, Gabrielle, in 1914. They would eventually divorce, and Casson would marry Catherine Mallon in 1928. The marriage wouldn't become known amongst their friends in the film community until after Casson's death, as the marriage occurred while he was taking a break from the screen to work on the stage. The only witness to their marriage was one of their close friends. Casson reportedly met Catherine while they were both working on a DeMille picture, possibly his 1927 epic, King of Kings. Cecil B. DeMille himself reportedly noted that Catherine was the most beautiful woman in the world. Tragically, Catherine fell ill around the same time as her husband and would pass away one day after her husband they would be buried side by side. Catherine's mother, Maggie, was also stricken with pneumonia and was in an adjoining hospital room with her daughter. Newspapers reported that Maggie would probably not live very long, and they did not tell her about her daughter and son-in-law's death until after she had regained some of her strength. They thought the news would kill her. Maggie, however, would recover and live for another 20 years. At the time of his death, Casson was set to star in Cecil B. DeMille's 1929 picture Dynamite and had just about finished wrapping up his scenes. Conrad Nagel would eventually take over the role. Judging by a 1923 newspaper article, Casson may have been in frail health for a number of years before his death. The article discusses how he had just recently recovered from having a serious physical breakdown. He would take two months off to rest at his sister's house in Fort Worth, Texas. 
And don't forget, in 1917 on his draft card, he listed himself as having tuberculosis. Casson's death was an early example of the superstition that famous people die in threes. The other two actors who passed away around the same time as Casson were Frank Warren and William Russell. However, since Casson's wife died the day after him, his death was cited as the most tragic of the bunch. That's not the best distinction to have. Well, there you have it. The end of part two of our episode about silent film actors and actresses who lost their lives from sickness, namely pneumonia. Our next episode in the series will cover silent film stars who lost their lives to the dreaded disease tuberculosis and highlight a famous California sanitarium that became the final residence for a number of silent film stars, including Mabel Normand. If you would be so kind to rate and review the podcast on iTunes so that other people can find the show, and because I really want to know what you think. I do. You can also email me at silencesplatinumpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or if you just want to say hi. And make sure to check out the Silences Platinum blog at www.silenceisplatinum.blogspot.com for pictures and other source info on this and past episodes. Also, follow me on Instagram at silenceisplatinum. I wanted to make a quick plug for the Headstone fundraisers that have occurred and also for future projects. I am so grateful to everyone who donated and helped spread the word about the Headstone fundraiser for Joe Keaton, the father of Buster Keaton. I and a number of my silent film fan friends gathered at Joe's grave on July 6th on what would have been his 151st birthday to celebrate his life and also his brand new headstone. I also want to thank everyone who donated to our most recent fundraiser for silent film actress Corliss Palmer. I'm so happy we were able to reach our goal on, of all days, Corliss's 116th birthday. More news on that to follow as we are now in the process of getting the headstone made. As far as future projects, I have a list of over 20 actors and actresses that currently lie in unmarked graves. Silent actresses like Vera Reynolds, Mae McAvoy, Alberta Vaughn, Virginia Pearson, just to name a few, currently lie in unmarked graves. Hopefully in the future, we can ensure that they have a proper headstone so that they will always be remembered. Again, I am so grateful to everyone who has helped spread the word and donated, and I look forward to working with all of you on future headstone projects. So, until next time, remember the immortal words of Miss Mary Pickford. Adding sound to movies would be like putting lipstick on the Venus de Milo. Shh.